And we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking tonight at, at verses 12 through 17. And uh, if you'll remember uh, the thing that we looked at last uh, Sunday uh, was uh, this man who had sinned a great sin against the Apostle Paul. And as a result, uh, the church had to deal with it. The church came together, they voted, and as a majority, uh, they made a decision, and this decision uh, affected this young man, in, or this man, in, in a great way. Uh, but it brought about repentance in his life. He, he turned from his sins, he was truly remorseful for what he had done, and as a result, Paul told, Paul told him, hey, he has repented of his sin, you guys need to receive him. Uh, the problem was the people were treating him as if he had not repented of his sin, were continuing to treat him um, in a way that caused him to feel uh, very sorrowful. And Paul said, you have to be careful because if you're, if you're not, this man will be swallowed up with sorrow, is, is the way that Paul put it. And, and so we talked about how um, that's kind of an aspect of church discipline that we don't think about a lot, an aspect of church discipline where, where a church did the right thing, but then they did it in the wrong way. Instead of forgiving this man, they continued to uh, throw guilt upon him. And so that leads us into verse 12 here. And we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 where he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many, peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now when you look at verse 12 here, we see Paul talking about himself going to Troas. And he probably traveled there sometime after the riot uh, that we saw in, in the book of Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. Now, a lot of Paul's companions were, were there to meet him. You see that in Acts chapter 20. But the purpose of his trip to Troas was to preach Christ's gospel. He went there to share the word of God. In fact, that's what he did wherever he went. No matter where Paul was going, that was the purpose to preach the gospel of the Lord. Notice it says the Lord opened a door for him in Troas. What did that mean? Well, it just meant that there were people who were receptive there. There were people there that when he preached the gospel, showed interest in the gospel. That They showed a repentance toward the gospel. And so he says, you know, the Lord really opened up a door for me here in Troas. Um, possibly... There was a church there established while, while he was waiting on Titus. And in his visit, if you go and you read it, the visit there gives us a very interesting story. Do you all remember the story in Scripture of, of the fellow Eutychus where Paul was preaching for so long, he preached late into the night, that Eutychus was sitting kind of in a second story uh, uh, window there, and he fell asleep and he fell out of the window and hit the ground and it killed him. And, uh, you know, we've heard people say, I'll tell you what, I, I, I think I'm just going to, I'm going to die, boy, if he preaches any longer, I think. Well, that really happened well, with Paul preaching. And the funniest part of the story, the funniest part of the story is, uh, and there is, God, you know, the joke, uh, well, why, you know, why, did, uh, why was he called Eutychus? And they said, well, Eutychus too, you know, if that happened to you. But, uh, 
funniest part of that, in that story to me is um, that when Paul resurrects him from the dead, or when God resurrects him from the dead, Paul starts preaching again. Because you'd think if anything could end a church service, that would be it. Okay, can we go home now, Paul? No, he's okay. We're going to keep preaching. So that, that story is, is there in this, in this situation with Troas. Now when we look at verse 13, we see that, that he, Paul says he, he was troubled in his spirit. And, and he had hoped to see Titus because Titus was supposed to give him the news about the Corinthian church. Um, remember we talked about how Paul had already written two letters to the church at Corinth. And both of those letters were, were filled with, with correction. And so Paul was sincerely concerned about how they responded. You know, it wasn't like today where we can send a text or we can get a telephone. Hey, how did they receive it? Did they get mad? Did, did they run you out, out of town on a rail? What did they do when you gave them that letter? So Paul was just anxious to hear this response. Um, and, and so he leaves Troas and he goes to Macedonia and he's looking for Titus. And evidently, he, I mean, eventually he finds Titus in, in Macedonia, um, 2 Corinthians 7, 5 and 6 talk about that. And, and Paul was comforted by the words of Titus. Um, he relayed to Paul, Hey Paul, the Corinthian church received this well. They understood that you were speaking to them from the Lord. They understood that your desire was to see them have a right relationship with God. And so that encouraged Paul. Now in, in these two verses, we can't help but see the genuine concern that Paul had for the Corinthian church. His, his heart ached for these people. Uh, he, he really could not rest until he discovered whether or not they were going to get their lives right. And, and I love this about Paul because, you see, here's a man who is obviously no hiring. You know what a hiring is, don't you? A hireling is someone who is there for pay. They're there for pay. Now, they don't, uh, Jesus talked about a hireling, and he said, he said this. He said, the best, the best, I think Jesus gave us the best description of a hireling. He said, they don't care for the sheep. They don't care about them. You know, you can preach to people and not care about the people you preach to, can't you? You're just preaching. Maybe you're preaching for a paycheck. And, and, and usually if that's the case, then um, your whole goal is just going to be to kind of um, make yourself look good, and therefore, you're not really going to preach hard doctrines. You're not going to preach anything that would upset anybody. You're just going to do everything to make sure that, that you're okay. But the problem with that is, if you, if, you, if you get a preacher who doesn't preach on sin, it won't be long before you have a congregation that is living in sin. That's all there is to it. God has ordained that one of the ways you're sanctified is through the preaching of His Word. And if the Word isn't being preached, the people aren't going to be sanctified. But, but what does Paul want? More than anything, he doesn't want a big church. He doesn't want people to say, oh, here's the great Apostle Paul. He wants to see these people grow in their faith. He wants to see this church succeed as a genuine church, a sincere church, a real church, an honest church. And when I read verses 12 and 13, that's what I see there. That Now, now by the way, I think that the Corinthian church was Paul's biggest headache. And you read it, and you go back and especially you read 1 Corinthians, my goodness, you talk about problems. You talk about issues. These people were always having all types of problems, fussing and fighting and, and doing all kind of crazy stuff. Um, but as bad as they were, Paul still loved them. And he still wanted to be sure that they were living their lives for the Lord. Now when you move into verse 14, Paul then erupts into praise. 
And you see, he's erupts into praise because he's, he's so happy about this news. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. You see, Paul is thankful because God gave victory in these spiritual matters. Um, he's really clear. He's saying, I'm not the reason these people repented. I'm not the reason they got their life right with God. He, he, he thanks God. Paul's sorrow is, is turned into joy over the victory that God has given. And what is the victory? The victory is the repentance of the people. When you talk about victory in the Christian life, that is victory. When you conquer sin, when you overcome sin, that, that's what victory is. And Paul's thankful for that. And the next few verses are a commentary on the victory that God gives to believers. And so that's what we'll kind of focus on now. First thing I want you to see is God causes us to triumph in Christ. You see that word used for triumph, or the word triumph there? The word used for that comes from a, a Greek word that described a specific type of victory parade that was reserved for Roman generals. Now, if the general had led a military into victory and completed certain acts, the Roman government would give him what was called a triumphal procession. A triumphal procession. Now, there were criteria that had to be met if a uh, Roman general received the triumphal procession. And, and this is what the criteria was. The criteria was, number one, um, he had to be the actual commander-in-chief. In other words, he had to be the one leading the armies. He had to be the one, he had to be the George Washington, let's call him. He had to be the main man. Secondly, the victory had to be complete. It couldn't be a victory that was partially complete. It had to be a victory that was absolutely complete. Thirdly, 5,000 of the enemy have had to have been killed in one engagement. And so this couldn't be just a guy who just kind of had a small battle. It had to be a, a, a battle in, in which at least 5,000 enemy combatants were killed. Number four, the Roman territory had to have been expanded. Because of this man's um, uh, war efforts, now the Roman territory was bigger. And so that, had, that was one of the criteria as well. And then the last one was uh, the victory had to be over a foreign foe. In other words, it couldn't be any type of civil war that, that took place there. It had to be a, a, a foreign foe. And so the Romans, they had this thing all figured out. So this was a big deal to them. It wasn't like they just gave a triumphal procession to anybody. They had this criteria that, that had to be met. Now, it was a parade, essentially. And the parade consisted of political leaders of Rome. Um, you would have prisoners of war, and they were made to march in the parade. And the reason for that was as they were marching, they symbolized the enemy that had been overtaken. But also it was a way to, to shame them. Um, they would have trumpeteers. These trumpeteers would be playing and they'd be marching. They would have certain spoils from the land that they conquered that they would be holding up and showing to the people as they were uh, marching through. Um, uh, they would have musicians. Uh, they would have priests carrying incense. They would have bulls in this parade. And the bulls were being marched to, to be sacrificed. 
And all of this would precede the general. All of this would be going on in this huge parade that's going through the streets. And behind them would be the general. And the general was the focal point of the whole parade. And he would actually be carried in a chariot. He would be clothed in a beautiful uh, purple garment. And he would have an ivory scepter. And on top of that ivory scepter would be the symbol of Rome, which was an eagle. An eagle. And then there would be a slave there who would hold the crown of Jupiter over his head as he was drawn through the streets for all to see. Jupiter was the chief god of the Romans, an offspring of Zeus. Uh, uh, He was the king of all gods. Uh, The planet Jupiter is named Jupiter because when you look at it, it's this huge planet. It seems to be the planet of all planets. And it's named Jupiter after that god of the Romans. And they would have this crown that was the crown of Jupiter. And they would hold this before that general during the parade. And everybody who watched this parade knew that this was the man who caused Rome to triumph. That's what it was all about. This was the man that caused Rome to triumph. And they would uh, have an army marching behind that general. And they would be shouting the words, Hurrah, old triumph. Over and over. Hurrah, old triumph. Hurrah, old triumph. So just imagine that in your mind. What a spectacle. That's a spectacle, isn't it? And it didn't happen a whole lot because of all the criteria you had to meet. But when it did, man, it got everyone's attention. And it really exalted this Roman general. Now Paul here, he sees the Lord Jesus as the one who gives believers victory. See, he's, he's using this thing in the Roman culture that the people knew about And he's using that to say, hey, this is what's going to happen with the Lord Jesus Christ. Soon, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be publicly displayed for everyone to see. Soon, He's going to be honored as the general who has led the church into victory. And as His army, we're going to follow Him into victory, destroying the works of the devil, souls from hell being saved, And what's the church going to do? Well, we're going to shout victory. Even now, by the way, before the war is over, we're already shouting victory. And we can do this because we know that in Christ, we're always going to have the victory. So it's a beautiful, beautiful picture here that Paul uses. Something the people knew about, but he used that to apply it to Christ. Now he says there that the gospel is a sweet-smelling aroma. During the celebration of this triumph, um, the incense that the priest had would fill the streets. When they walked by you, those priests, and you were standing on the street watching this thing, your nostrils would be filled with the smell of, of, of that aroma. Paul uses that custom to illustrate the preaching of the gospel. Because everywhere Paul went, he preached the gospel. And his words, the words of the gospel were a sweet-smelling aroma, filling the hearts of everybody who would believe the gospel. The knowledge, as he says, of Christ is given through the gospel. And it's that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that is a sweet-smelling aroma to you and I. 
When we hear that gospel, church, when we think about what Christ has done for us, how He has taken upon Himself our sins, how He has conquered death, hell, and the grave for us, that is a sweet-smelling aroma for you and I. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, man. A beautiful picture. Yeah, you know, we think about, I don't, I don't want to chase this rabbit too far. But, but, but um, there, and this is symbolic, so I don't want you to take what I'm about to say too far. But have you ever thought about what heaven will smell like? Seriously. It's going to smell great. Amen. It really is. God gave you your senses. Amen. We think about it looking great. We think about the sound of the angelic choirs and the redeemed singing praises. We think about that. We think about how it's going to feel, but we seldom think about how it's going to smell there. But I think it's going to smell wonderful. And this is symbolic here that the gospel is a sweet-smelling fragrance. And it's just, uh, just a taste of how wonderful it will be in heaven. And he says in verse 15 that believers are the aroma of Christ to God. You see, in the celebration of triumph, uh, the emperor was seated at the end of the processional. They're all headed to him. They're going toward the emperor. And eventually, therefore, the fragrance of all of this uh, incense would reach him. It would reach the emperor, the main man in charge of, of Rome. And because the parade represented a victory for Rome, and the incense was a part of that celebration... That incense therefore pleased the emperor. When he smelt that incense, when it, when it finally got to him, he smelt that incense and it pleased him. Now the symbolism here is this. It's to us, the emperor is God. Amen? He is the king of kings. And the idea is, is the ministry that you and I are involved in as we march toward the, the Lord, as we march toward God on this wonderful journey we're on, we understand that the ministry that we have ascends into the heavens and it pleases God. Now, why does it please God? Uh, going off this whole idea of smell, the idea is because we smell, so to speak, like Christ. Why? Because we're clothed in His righteousness and we're busy with His ministry. You know, you think about being clothed in Christ. Have you, and, and you know, this is, some of you, this may bring memories to you and, and it may be special to you. For others, it may be hard. But, but you know, there are people, let's just say uh, a woman's husband dies. And there's a shirt. And she won't wash that shirt. And you know why she won't wash it? Because it smells like him. Amen. It smells like him. You say, you know what? This smells like him. And you know, all men don't stink. Right? Some of us smell good, right? But I think we all have a distinct smell. And if anybody knows whether, what, what, well, I mean, you know what your husband smells like. And I, by the way, I think that's a beautiful thing. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with doing that. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But here's the thing, y'all. We're clothed in Christ. You hear me? We, we've got on His righteousness. And therefore, you know what we smell like to the Father? We smell like Christ. Amen? We smell like Christ. It's the fragrance of His dear Son who died for us. But now, through His death, He has clothed us in the very righteousness of Christ. And that's why we please the Father. 
We please the Father because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, church. We've been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We're busy with His ministry, doing His work, clothed in His righteousness. Now look at the end of verse 15. For the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now I want you to see first of all that the gospel affects everyone. Both the army of Rome and the prisoners of war smelled that incense that the priests were burning. To the, Ro- to the Romans, it was an aroma of life. To the Romans, they're like, hey man, this, this symbolizes we won. We have victory. We conquered the enemy. To the others, it was a reminder that they'd been defeated. You see that? When they smelled it, it symbolized, oh no, we've been defeated. And now we're going to be put to death. And this is how the gospel message is. The message of Christ is sweet to many. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sweet to many because it reminds us of the victory we have over Satan, over death, over hell, and over the grave and the eternal celebration that soon we're all going to enter into. But to the unbeliever, to those who reject the gospel, the gospel reminds them of their sin. The gospel reminds them of their impending doom if they continue to reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so never think that the gospel doesn't affect everyone. In fact, this Sunday in our sermon, you'll see that, how the gospel affects the lost and the saved in our message this Sunday. Interesting that these things line up with each other uh, by the providence of God. But don't ever think that the message of Christ doesn't affect unbelievers because it does. For the believer, this message is wonderful. It is sweet. But to the unbeliever, it's doomed. It's doomed. Now, I want you to see here, Paul says that no one deserves to be saved. Paul's question is, who is sufficient? That's not meant to be answered. It's a rhetorical question. But it it just implies that it's common knowledge that nobody deserves to be a sweet aroma to God. You know, y'all, if we deserve to be saved, it wouldn't be grace. It can only be grace. We just sang it, amazing grace. It can only be grace if we don't deserve it. That's what the word grace implies, doesn't it? We get something we don't deserve, something good that we don't deserve. And so that's why Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord? None of us are worthy of this, but God, by His grace, He's he's given that to us. Um, You know, Paul, even himself, as great a man of God as he was, wonderful man of God, you know, you're not going to find anybody greater than Paul. But even Paul knew he wasn't sufficient for these things. He wasn't worthy to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And then look at verse 17. Here Paul concludes that there are men who peddle the Word of God, specifically the Gospel. The word peddle uh, can also be translated corrupt. Uh, The word speaks of a person who tampers with what he sells in order to make a better profit from it. For instance, uh, it might refer to a wine seller who waters down his wine so he can have more wine, but yet make more money at the same time. So it's a person who might um, uh, have a faulty scale 
where you're supposed to be getting half a pound of something, but they've kind of rigged the scale and you're not actually getting half a pound of it. That's the idea of a, of a peddler. Somebody who's corrupting. Somebody who's... You, you, you're, they're taking what is, what is pure, what is good, what is right, and they're watering it down. And what is he talking about here? What does this refer to? Well, it refers to preachers who water down the gospel. Peddlers of the Word of God. Um, they change the message of the gospel. Now, why would anybody change the message of the gospel? Well, they change the message of the gospel to get more followers. Because more followers means either more power or more money or both. Right? More power, more money, or both. And I can't, I can't warn you enough. Be very, very careful about the preachers you listen to. Now, I, I know I'm not the only preacher out there preaching the Word. There are wonderful, great men of God that are preaching the Word. But please be careful. And I want to tell you something. If you really want to find out who's preaching the Word, what you really need to focus on is not so much just what he preaches, but what he doesn't preach. Yeah. Amen? Because there are many who... What they preach isn't necessarily wrong, but there's so much they don't preach. That you have to wonder, well, why don't you ever talk about this? Why don't you ever talk about that? You know, for instance, a, a, a preacher who will never preach on sin and repentance. A preacher who will never preach on hell. A preacher who will never declare the full counsel of the Word of God. What is he doing? Well, he's watering it down. He's peddling the Word of God. And it can only be for one of two reasons. To gain power, influence, or for money. You know, it doesn't matter if you have 10 people to preach to or if you've got 1,000 people to preach to. You should be preaching the same message. The Word of God. Never watering the Word of God down at all. Never trying to say, well, I want to make this more uh, easy to go down for people. I don't want people to, to, to reject this. Um, you know, I remember, I remember, and this is such a terrible thing that I... Hesitate to even speak of it. Such a terrible thing. Uh, but, but it happened right here. And it, and it was a person, not right here at Jefferson Street, but right here in our community. And it was a person who was supposed to be you know, a really good preacher, a person everybody's supposed to respect. And he, he was ministering on the city streets. And they said, well, um, there was a prostitute who came. And uh, he said, you know, when you have a prostitute you can't tell them that they need to turn from their sin. Because if you tell them they have to turn from their sin, well, their John might get upset with them and might beat them. And I'm like, where in the world did you get that from? Where, where in God's name did you get such foolishness from? That's not what Scripture teaches at all. Scripture says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're a prostitute, you need to stop being a prostitute. You need to turn from your sins. And you need to be saved. And listen, I don't doubt that, that coming to Christ can bring persecution against a person. Didn't Jesus say that? Jesus said that when you believe in Me, your mom, your dad might hate you. He said they might throw you in jail. He said they might persecute you. He said they might kill you. But Jesus never said, hey, don't, don't, don't do it then. Did He? And it broke my heart to hear that local preacher say that. 
broke my heart. But what can be the only? It can only be that He's peddling the Word of God. That He's watering it down. Because here's what you can do. You can say, oh, the prostitute got saved, but she's still a prostitute. See, that, that's what you can do when that's your theology. And so you can go back and say, oh, we have this many prostitutes saved. But they're all still prostitutes. Newsflash. You didn't have any prostitutes saved. If they're all still prostitutes. He said, such were some of you. But you have been washed. You've been changed. And I think in our culture, that's the biggest thing with peddling the Word of God. This idea that there is a gospel without repentance. But there is not a gospel without repentance. The gospel contains repentance. And it's necessary. It's just as necessary to repent as it is to believe. They are two different sides of the same coin. When one truly believes, they will repent. When one truly repents, it's the proof that they've believed. Paul would never do this. He would never water down the gospel. He would proclaim the fullness of the gospel and he would do it in the power of God. Why? Because Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for His power of God unto salvation. So here we see Paul sincerely preach the gospel by the power of God in the sight of God. And his understanding was he was accountable before God. And that's what kept him sincere. He knew that he would uh, stand before the Lord. You know, there's a, there's a, a really interesting verse in the book of Hebrews. I think it's chapter 13 where it talks about, uh, it's talking to the church and it's talking about elders. It's talking about pastors. And it says this about, about the elders. He says, they watch over your souls and they will give account. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? They watch over your souls and they will give an account. That's a reason to not be a preacher right there, buddy. Amen. That's hard to know that in your heart one day you'll stand before the Lord and part of your responsibility will have been did you watch over their souls? When you saw the enemy coming, did you tell them? When you saw sin taking over their life, did you warn them? Did you preach the whole counsel of the Word of God? Or didn't you? And it was that sense of accountability that, that drove Paul to be a sincere preacher, not peddling the Word of God. Um, and, and despite the tough times that he had here with this church at Corinth, he just kept preaching the Gospel to them. He knew that, that, that Christ was already victorious. He knew that Christ was anxiously awaiting this great victory parade, which we're all waiting to happen. Amen? And that reality as well helped him press on in the midst of all these trials. Listen, folks, if you're in Christ, you're a part of this wonderful victory that has been accomplished through Him. And you should live your life as a victorious Christian. Your general has defeated the enemy. Your commander-in-chief has already done it. You're going to be a part of this wonderful... Well, I about threw them on somebody. You're going to be a part of this wonderful victory parade. You're going to be a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. It's a wonderful reality. Live in that reality, church. Live in it. With every head bowed. Father, we love You. We're grateful for Jesus and all He means.